From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This week, we're talking with author G. Willow Wilson. She writes the fantastic comic book Ms. Marvel for Marvel. She also wrote for X-Men, Superman, Women of Marvel, A-Force. She's written her own novels and some graphic novels and has done some journalism-y stuff. This is one prolific human being. We wanted to talk to her not just because she's writing a great comic right now, but also because she's bringing a character to life who breaks barriers in more ways than one. That conversation is coming up. We will also tell you about a new bold initiative that Nerdette is making. And we're going to talk a little bit about podcast fashion with some folks over at ModCloth. That is all coming up. I thought the whole point of podcast meant it didn't matter what I wore. I know, no right? No one knows. That was my dilemma as well. All right. We'll talk about it. <laughs> But first, our conversation with G. Willow Wilson. On Nerdat, we often like to talk about the origin stories of things. So when Trisha talked with G. Willow, she figured a good first question was to hear about the origin story of the Ms. Marvel comics. Well, Ms. Marvel started out kind of out of the blue with a phone call I got from Stephen Wacker, who at that time was an X-Men editor at Marvel, and his then assistant editor, Sana Amanat. And they pitched me... The following concept. We want to create a new young American Muslim superheroine and give her her own ongoing series. And nothing was known at that time about that character. She could have been from anywhere. She didn't have a power set. She didn't have a name. They just said, this is what we want to do. Would you like to create and write this character? And I almost said no. I thought they were nuts. Really? Yes. <laughs> For the simple reason that this was at a time, this phone call, when I couldn't write an issue of Superman without certain people coming out of a certain corner of the blogosphere and accusing me of being like part of the, you know, socialist jihadi attack on American oh, values boy. or something like that. The Internet's a lovely um, place sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But man, it is, you know, it's like the ocean, pretty fish and also big giant sharks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, I said yes, because how do you turn down an opportunity like that from a giant entertainment corporation? But it was really a blank canvas. I mean, after that first phone conversation, Sana and I spent months deciding what this character's personality should be, where should she be from. Her power set was a huge thing because that has great weight and significance for any superhero. It shapes their journey. It shapes their their ability to do and not do certain things. And I had never been part of creating a superhero from scratch that way before. Very few people have, really, who are still working. I mean, a lot of these characters have been around for so long that the opportunity to do what you did is pretty rare. It is rare. Or if it happens, it's like you're making a minor character for the purposes of one plot line in one series that's going to vanish after that and never come back again. So it right. doesn't really matter if it doesn't make any sense or right, right. <laughs> if you haven't thought out the backstory. <laughs> so let's talk a little about Ms. Marvel's powers because they're pretty cool. Can you explain what they are? Sure. So she is a polymorph, which means she can grow and shrink any part of her body independently and also all at once. We casually refer to this both among ourselves at Marvel and in the book itself as Embeginning, <laughs> which is a Simpsons reference. Mm -hmm. um, so she can grow to a max height of about nine and a half feet and shrink down to about six inches or so is uh, the smallest that we've ever done. She can't get as small 
as Ant-Man or as big as, maybe not quite as big as the Hulk, Mm -hmm. but somewhere in that range. She can do similar things. And she'll also occasionally just embiggen her fists, say, if she's going to get into a big fight. Or sometimes she'll make her feet really wide and thin like a duck so that she can sort of run across water and things like that. So we're always coming up with new ways to kind of play with that power set and do unexpected things with that. And she also has a minor healing factor. So when she gets hurt, she can heal more rapidly than a normal human being could. That's got to be helpful because if you make giant fists, they still get hurt when you hit things. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Tell us about the the name of the character, if you would, because it's sort of self-referential to the universe it lives in, which is kind of unique. Yeah. So when we were thinking of what kind of name to give her, I wanted to give her something alliterative since that's such a common thing in superherodom. You have Peter Parker, who was a big inspiration for her backstory, the kind of nerdy kid who who gets superpowers unexpectedly and has to kind of grapple with them solo and figure out how to do that. And so I wanted it to kind of have that patter. But we also wanted her to have kind of a, a unique name as well. And so Kamala was the one that I kind of landed on, which is kind of a a feminine derivative of the Arabic name Kamal, which means perfection. Mm. And it doesn't really exist in Arabic or in Urdu. It's sort of something that we made up. But her last name, Khan, is like maybe the, the Pakistani equivalent of Smith. It's a very, very common last name. And also, obviously, her, you know, her code name, Ms. Marvel, is kind of a big mantle to take on in the yeah. Marvel Universe and inspired by her hero, Carol Danvers, who is Captain Marvel, but who started out as Ms. Marvel way back in the day. So it was very much stepping into a legacy name, a legacy title, and that has really had a big influence on the book and on the character. So it's been a couple of years now since she hit the scene, and I wonder, you know, before even the first book came out, you were getting so much feedback from people just about the hypothetical who were either thrilled or irate right off the bat. And <laughs> and now that it's been out and people are seeing what you're really doing and how you're writing and illustrating this story, what surprised you most about the reaction from fans or from people who maybe aren't fans? I think I and a lot of other people were expecting much more blowback than we got It was the right character, the right series, the right time. And fans really responded to to Kamala and to the world that we created for her. And so I, I thought at the beginning that I was really going to have to fight a lot harder for this character to sort of push back against the hate mail and the low, low bar of expectations and the cynicism and the accusations of tokenism and things like that. But the fact that the audience really from the very beginning and before the very beginning, after the series was announced, before the books were even out, were so prepared to embrace this character that it it really changed my relationship to the book, my relationship to fandom in ways that I really didn't expect. And it's been amazing to watch. How has it changed your relationship to fans? It's really given me amazing, amazing connections with readers in a way that I didn't have before. And I feel very connected to and very protective of that audience because they've opened up in ways, in some cases, that make them very vulnerable because the series has made such an impact on them. And so 
you know, before when I go to con- when I went to conventions, I would sort of be sitting at my little table, and people would wander by, and I had sort of like a core of maybe twelve <laughs> super fans <laughs> who I would see regularly. But now, when I go to a convention, I will often have people come up in tears because. Wow, yeah some issue of the book or a particular character or a particular storyline was so meaningful to them or resonated so much with their own experience that they just have this sort of spontaneous outburst of of tears. And so I feel like my job has kind of changed. It's not just writing a story. It's being a witness to people to whom this is a really important character, a really important book. And it's been life-changing in a lot of ways for me. And it's a wonderful kind of symbiosis that I feel like I have now with readers because of the way that this book has kind of unfolded. What you just said reminds me of not long ago, we spoke with Sandra Cisneros about her work. And a lot of her characters are representing communities that aren't popping up in popular fiction a lot also. And so she felt that same burden as the writer in one room, but then being out in the world and having to be what she called sort of the capital A author and and realizing what that was going to entail as her work became more popular, which was a great thing that she was going to become this conduit for people to, to share their own stories, like you said, and to witness them. What are some of the moments in the books that are those touch points for people that, that are bringing them to tears? And are they the ones that you hoped they would be in the writer's room or are they surprising in some way? Did you not realize how closely... Uh, they would hit people sort of like right in the heart? You know, that's a very interesting question. I think some of the things that people have really responded to are the things that I and Sana and Adrian and everyone else involved in the series hoped they would. One of the biggest being positive representations of American Muslim men in the series. I, I think we're often, when we see supposedly sympathetic portrayals of Muslims in American pop culture, it's usually very tropey, you know, yeah. like the the women are kind of oppressed and we, we sympathize with them. And so those are the people we sympathize with. But the, you know, the men especially are seen as very oppressive, domineering, uh, cold, not warm hearted at all. You know, it's just sort of runs down a laundry list. And so one of the biggest reactions that we got and continue to get are about Abu Kamala's dad mm-hmm. or Amir, her brother, who, while in many ways more conservative than than she is, love her, are supportive, try to make it work, try to navigate that family dynamic of, of things that they agree about, things that they disagree about. And people really responded to that. You know, I, I remember especially one girl came up to me at a convention and said, Thank you for showing my dad, oh, wow. <laughs> as he nice. really is, because it, it's a big thing. And it's something that I think cumulatively, when all you see are negative stereotypes, it really does have an impact. But some other instances are ones that I did not expect. I remember I was doing a signing early on in Colorado, and this big Viking-looking dude with blonde hair came <laughs> up with tears in his eyes and said, I was Kamala in elementary school. Oh, wow. And I sort of sat there and I was like, wow, tell me about that. <laughs> now you look a little more like Thor, so go on. Yeah. Right, you look a little more like Thor. And he said, you know, my parents were Polish immigrants. And at school, I was the kid who had kind of a funny accent and who brought 
all this cabbagey stuff to school for lunch. <laughs> I did not have the PB&J. Everybody said my food smelled funny. And so when you had that line that she says about why do I have to be the kid who brings the weird food, I burst into tears because that was me. And it just showed me that you never really know what people are carrying. Yeah. You can't tell by looking that they, they may have stories that you can't guess just by how they are on the outside. And that's been really wonderful for me is those unexpected moments, those unexpected connections where you learn something that you really did not see coming before. Just ahead, more with G. Willow Wilson about why geekdom and other kinds of outsideriness often go hand in hand. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. This week, Trisha talks with G. Willow Wilson. She is the brain behind Ms. Marvel. She's also a journalist and an author. She has written a couple of books. One of her books is called The Butterfly Mosque, and it's a memoir about how she grew up atheist in Colorado and then after college moved to Cairo, where she met the man who would become her husband. That's also where she decided to convert to Islam. As you're creating this character and thinking about the generation that maybe is its primary audience, specifically millennials, and how the worldview of a millennial is maybe different than their parents' generation or Generation X. What is something that Ms. Marvel does that tries to speak to that moment and that feeling of what it is to be a teenager or a 20-something right now? When I was sitting down and creating this character and we knew that she was going to be a teenager, it was very important to me that this not just be a book about an American Muslim girl and and the struggles specific to being an American Muslim girl, although those are important, to connect those struggles to the struggles that this generation is facing right now. I wanted this to be a character that spoke to that age group, which is chronically underestimated, assumed to be plugged onto their iPhones at all times. And I think the people who to whom that inspires a lot of fear don't realize that there's a lot going on on the internet that they don't see. I think there's an assumption by older generations that since they don't see what's going on on the internet, on Snapchat, on Twitter, that there must be nothing going on on the internet or on Snapchat, on Twitter, on whatever. My favorite example of that, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a picture of a group of teenagers at a museum, a fine art museum of some kind, and there's this gorgeous painting behind them. And None of them are looking at the painting. They're all huddled, staring at their phones, tapping away with their thumbs. And when it first went viral, everyone said, look, this is what's wrong with kids today. And then it turned out, have you seen this? Do you know the story? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it turned out that they were doing the guided tour of this painting and that they'd paid attention to the painting for a long time and were now listening to the expert in the little guided tour explain it to them. Exactly. It's the perfect example of what you're saying, right? That it's about a platform, not a medium, you know, that you can be... Exactly. They weren't playing Candy Crush. (laughs) They were not playing Candy Crush. You know, and even if they were, this is not new. You know, you go back to photos from the 1940s, and instead of being buried in their iPhones, everybody's buried in their newspapers. Mm -hmm. This is not new. I think there's a lot of fear of the future that's just kind of endemic 
to us as a species. I mean, you know, lest we forget, there were certain segments of, uh, you know, the establishment who thought that the printing press was the work of the devil and was going to lead to the downfall of civilization. <laughs> telephones in the uh, home. Telephones in the home. What next? Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. We're all doomed. <laughs> so I think, I think you have to kind of trust the generation that is to deal with the situations that are that that they are the best suited to tackle the problems that they are facing and that was kind of my attitude in Ms Marvel as well that they have the tools they have the knowledge we just have to kind of step back and let them do their thing and and figure it out i'm kind of in a, a shoulder generation i'm 33 so i'm either like an elder statesman of the millennials or a younger sibling of Gen X, depending on where you put the line. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was something that was very important to me to represent a teenage character in a non-stereotypical, real and identifiable way. And especially teenage girls, right? I mean, pop culture just tells us that they have nothing of substance to offer as often as possible. Like, that's just the message perpetually about teenage girls. Right. Or or they are sort of people who are done unto, not yeah. people who do. Not that they are agents in their own lives, in their own fates. And yeah, I think that is a big problem because it's entirely possible to discuss the problems facing a certain population and exclude that population from that conversation. And I think that that's something that we've done with teenagers. And with women in the House of Representatives often. Um. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's switch gears a little and talk about some of Ms. Marvel's pals. Let's talk about the A-Force. Can mm -hmm. you tell us in a nutshell, you know, who we're talking about and what's going on with the A-Force? So A-Force was kind of a wacky idea that editor Daniel Ketchum and I came up with sort of during the Secret Wars period, which is a, was a big event in the Marvel Universe when everything was kind of destroyed and recreated. And for a short time, all bets were off. All of the universes converged and characters that would not normally interact were kind of thrown together. And so he thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had a book in which all of kind of the A-list and B-list and C-list female characters of the Marvel Universe were in the same place and were on one team. So we could have characters from the X-Men, characters from the Inhumans, characters from the Avengers, and they were all sort of in the same spot. How crazy would that be? And I thought, wow, very crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. And yeah. so A-Force kind of arose out of that, out of a desire to kind of use that opportunity to put all of these very different personalities together and see how they would interact in a in a team setting because writing a team book is very different than writing a solo book and a lot of these female characters even though they were prominent in their own little corners of the universe had never been together so this was an opportunity to say hey let's try something new let's see how that would play out in this situation where they have to work together i think my favorite character in this crew is singularity and this is one of those sentences that I love saying because in the world of comics, it's totally normal. Well, at least sort of normal to say this character is a pocket universe that gains consciousness. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that's about right. And chooses to be female, which yep. is an interesting choice. Why, why make a character who made a choice about gender in this way? What, what, what were you hoping you could unpack about gender by giving a character sort of a fresh view of what it means to be female in this a force. Well, what we wanted to do, or what I wanted to do at any rate with this character, was to create a new point of view to look at female superheroes 
particularly within the context of the Marvel Universe. I think when we think of a female superhero, we're used to thinking of an Amazon. You know, she's six foot tall, she's blonde, she's muscly, she's got very large accoutrements. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to say, well, why don't we step back from that and unpack what it means to be female in this universe, what what it means to be a woman in a universe with superpowers. And what does that say about being human? And what if the only lens through which this creature, who isn't really even a life form, she's really a quantum singularity, which, as you said, gains consciousness. What if the only lens through which she saw humanity was through this group of women? What would that mean? Because we're used to, I think, thinking of the default human experience as male, mankind. mankind. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so what if somebody who was a total outsider, who had no natal gender, who was not born female or male, encountered our species for the first time through the experience of women, what would that mean? And I thought it was it was a good conversation to have now, given the discussions we're having about everything from bathroom privileges right. <laughs> to insurance fights over what is covered and gender reassignment surgery and what all of this means for us as a culture. And so I thought, well, this is this is a really good time to have that conversation. And the great thing about superhero comics is that you really don't have any limits, that you, you can sort of push all of these questions to the nth degree and, uh, you know, examine things from a point of view that you wouldn't normally. And so Singularity was kind of born out of that. I think one of the things that always draws me to comic stories and sci-fi is that the protagonists are almost always outsiders in the environment that they're in. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about if that's something that first drew you to this world too, is something you could relate to, the idea of being an outsider. Absolutely. I think in a lot of ways, geek culture is outsider culture. And one of the things that I tell people is I don't feel weird as a woman in hijab at these comic book conventions and stuff because I'm standing next to a six foot guy with a beard and a Sailor Moon costume. We're all weird (laughs) together. You know, it's that's what's great about it is it's sort of the fringe converging on one point. And so I think it makes sense that this culture, you know, superheroes, this medium is very appealing to people who have felt in some way or other in their lives like they are not at the center of things. And I think most people have felt that way for one reason or another at some point in their lives. But I think people who sort of live on the margins feel very strongly connected to these narratives. I think that's why, for example, the X-Men have made such a huge impact on two different generations of geeks who are dealing with sort of two different civil rights movements. Because that idea of being labeled, ostracized, legally reclassified because of something you can't change— really resonates with people. In your memoir, The Butterfly Mosque, you you talk a lot about when you converted to Islam that you suddenly were feeling like an outsider in two directions, if that's fair to say, that that you were learning and becoming a part of a, a new culture and a new faith and had grown up in an atheist home and to not just come from an agnostic or sort of non-religious household, but an atheist home and, and to go through that experience. Do you find that over time, you're feeling less like an outsider in in either of those worlds, or is it still something you navigate with sort of a back and forth? You know, that's a good question. I find that now that I'm in my 30s, I, I care less about what will other people think 
what if I do something wrong? What if I mess up? I've become, I think, easier on myself in the sense that I know I have flaws. I have a better idea of what those flaws are. And I can navigate that space more easily. And I think also when you kind of say, this is what I do, this is who I am, and that's kind of it, the people who stay with you, who remain close to you, are the people who know you and love you and accept you as you are. And you discover that the things and the ideas and the communities and the people who start to fall away are are ones that you had to work kind of too hard to be a part of to begin with. Sure. So to me, it's kind of been in a weird way about growing up and growing into myself. I, I do feel it's easier now. And part of that is is just sort of gaining that maturity and that sense of humor, I think, about yourself. <laughs> sure. Uh, but also, I think, you know, I really have to credit, and people don't do this enough, I think, you know, the younger generations, the younger millennials who are coming up now who are fighting really hard to create space in which people can be neither nor or both, no matter what it is, whether it's gender, culture, religion, nationality, loyalty. It's really a big part, I think, of this generational narrative is is having space where you don't have to fit in one box or the other, that you can check multiple boxes. And so I really feel like it's kind of readers and activists and thinkers who are between five and ten years younger than me who are creating the space for me. <laughs> so it's it's been a very interesting thing. We're all in this together, the elder statesmen of the millennials and the, that, that's right. the <laughs> cavalry that's come in yeah, behind us. Yeah. And the non-millennials as well. You know, yeah. everybody's invited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a combination of growing up and also being at this particular time and place in the culture where the things that I was kind of pining for when I wrote Butterfly Mosque, the space to be both, uh, you know, American and Muslim, a geek, and all of those other things, and yeah. <laughs> that this exists now. I, I think it didn't really exist in the same way when I wrote Butterfly Mosque, and, and now it, it's really coming into being. And, and so it's, it's, been, it's been really cool for me because it feels tremendously valuable and like a relief to have those spaces and to be able to have those conversations. Do you think being a parent has shifted how you view that duality too? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think a lot of what comes out in Ms. Marvel stems from a kind of anxiety on on my part as a parent, knowing that my daughters who are half Egyptian and half American are going to have to navigate a lot of the challenges that Kamala does. And I, I like to tell people, you know, I didn't grow up as Kamala. I grew up as Zoe, you mm-hmm. know, kind of the upper middle class, you know, white, very waspy and, and uh, you know, not malevolent, but uh, kind of clueless in a lot of ways about what it was like to not be any of those things. Mm-hmm. And now I'm sort of faced with the task of raising two girls for whom life will be very different and who will have a very different set of challenges than the set that I faced and so in some ways, Ms. Marvel is me attempting to educate myself and, and prepare myself to kind of face those challenges with them and, and to be advocates for them, no matter what kind of path they choose going forward. So it's, it's definitely shaped how I feel about a lot of this stuff.
Thanks to G. Willow Wilson for joining us. If you haven't checked out Ms. Marvel yet, you should do it. You should also read A-Force because it has a universe that is a woman in it, and that is cool. <laughs> you got some pretty good nerding out done in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in just a minute, we're going to announce an exciting new initiative here at Nerdette. I don't think you sounded excited enough. Please. An exciting new initiative. Yes, there you go. Le mois de Trisha, we have very exciting news. Well, I mean, we have a precursor <laughs> to exciting news. We have an That's initiative true. that could lead to exciting news. Okay. We have an exciting initiative. <laughs> we have an exciting initiative. <laughs> so here's the deal, you guys. We are pretty excited about our grand scheme. We think you will be too. This is The Notion. The musical Hamilton, mm-hmm. created by and originally starring Lin-Manuel mm-hmm. Miranda, Coming to Chicago this fall. Mm-hmm. We're all very excited. Yes. Because it also means that in our fair city uh-huh. will be yes. <laughs> the one and only <laughs> Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yes. Who I just feel like is a national treasure. <laughs> I, yeah, he is a national treasure. And he I would belongs like, to the Library of Congress. Now. I would like him to come and talk with us on Nerdette because I have a great many questions for him. And yes. we thought maybe you do too. Listeners. So here's the deal. We have not actually booked Lynn Manuel Miranda. I feel like we should He's be the clear busiest about that. human. He's a very busy gentleman, and therefore it's totally fair if he is unable to join us. But just in case, we thought we would get ready and announce this initiative to attempt to get Lynn Manuel Miranda onto Nerdette. Our love is so real. <laughs> Our love is very real. And the thing is, too, Trisha, you and I have very different relationships to musical theater. And so I feel like this is something we could discuss with Lynn, right? Like, I really loved Hamilton. I'm not sure how I feel about all of those other things you continue to talk to me about. Yes. Lin-Manuel Miranda has created Hamilton, which I think is a gateway drug for a lot of people who maybe don't know that they like musical theater. At least maybe it could be. I'm just not sure yet. And so I'm hoping that Lin-Manuel Miranda can come on the show and help me convince Greta that there is much to love in the musical theater genre and maybe help convince a lot of people who know Hamilton and love it but aren't sure where to go next with their need for people singing about their feelings. So we are calling this the Lin-Manuel Miranda Moonshot. We don't know if it's going to work. Moonshot for Miranda is what Oh, we're yeah, we're calling it. it the Moonshot for Miranda. Moonshot for Miranda, guys. Hashtag maybe. And we're not sure if this is, you know, like a trip to the moon or more of like a Mars situation. Because as we said, the man is busy. But He's in very any busy. Case, but we are in this for the long haul. We are going to collect your questions. Yes. Dear listeners, for Lin-Manuel, in case we get to talk to him. J-I-C, just in case. Give us a call, 312-600-5638, or you can just record yourself on your phone and email it to us at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. These are the questions you would like us to ask Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just in case. Just in case. Moonshot for Miranda! <laughs> I'm gonna get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dad got amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I gotta holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. So, Trisha, it's a very exciting initiative, but something else pretty exciting happened this week. a bastard podcast? <laughs> Son of a whore and a Scotsman. Sorry. We're very excited about this moonshot for Miranda situation, but there was another thing that kind of blew everybody's minds in this podcast world this week, right, Trisha? Yeah, I didn't realize that there were clothing choices that I could make <laughs> that would make me the mm-hmm. ideal podcast co-host, mm-hmm. but the good folks at Mod Cloth 
who sell all sorts of adorable clothing and wares of different sorts, have created a podcast co-host top. Yes, it's a top. It's a blouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they Very. say is perfect for us, I guess. Can I read you this description? Yeah. Even a late night in the studio deserves your best style effort. Show you agree by sporting this navy top to record your next episode. Boasting a notched neckline, tab sleeves, and a deeper blue trim down the center, this sharp mod cloth namesake label top makes your outfit just as clever as the insights you share with your digital audience. I Never knew my clothes could be as insightful and clever. I know, right? As I am. We got to get out of these sweatpants, man. Speak for yourself. <laughs> so we thought it would be fun to call up the good people at ModCloth because it's not very often that you see podcast co-host related attire on the interweb. And just to be really clear, ModCloth is not paying us to say any of this. We just think it's really entertaining <laughs> that they made a podcast co-host shirt. It is worth clarifying that. So we called up Kristen Russo. She is a merchandise copy editor at ModCloth. And here is what we learned. The tops have actually been out since early August, but they only blew everybody's mind earlier this week, probably because Anna Sale tweeted about them. She is the host of Death, Sex, and Money, which if you're not listening to, you probably should be. They also are not endorsing this segment. My first question for Kristen was simple. It is, if we are co-hosts, and this is a co-host blouse, must we wear it simultaneously? What I think people didn't pick up on who were tweeting the link around is that we actually have two different colors of it. There's a yellow one and a blue one. So you don't actually have to match. You could wear just coordinating ones. I call the blue one. Oh, man. Yellow doesn't look good on me either. Yes, but I called the blue one. Okay, fine. I guess that would be better than like matchy-matchy. So we talked with Kristen a little bit more because we were curious, how does this happen? How does one top become a podcast co-host top while another (laughs) might be geared towards a blogger or an editor? We see these kinds of careers tied to clothing in fashion statements a lot. But who actually comes up with this stuff? We always joke that if someone were to get a hold of our search history, they'd wonder what kind of carefully premeditated joke we're trying to play on them. Because it ranges from searches about like native cacti of Texas to vocabulary words from certain art movements to date ideas for zombie lovers and different professions. I am a little confused on why the date ideas for zombie lovers relates to clothing items, but I guess I would have said the same thing about podcasts, huh? (laughs) I think date ideas for zombie lovers maybe is more in the like accessory camp. (laughs) Oh, there you go. You need to have some potable water and a nice clutch. Those are all the fashion words I know. (laughs) Clutch, I feel like you'd need a bigger bag. I feel a like this might be clearly, a backpack situation. Date night for zombie lovers. Clearly, Jesse Klein can bring back her backpack. That's amazing. So while we had Kristen on the phone, we also thought it was worth asking her if this was a thing that blew up not only in our weird little podcast co-host world, but also in the rest of the internet universe. And it turns out it did. And it turns out, maybe not unsurprisingly, that not all of the feedback they got was positive. Most of the negative feedback that we've gotten has been a critique that we should be aiming higher than co-host status. And we totally disagree. I think the difference between a podcast with one host versus multiple hosts, as you girls know, certainly isn't a question of intelligence or status or anything. And so the name of the podcast co-host top is a nod to that positive relationship that people have together. Speak for yourself, Kristen. (laughs) Is this when we should explain to people that Our co-host relationship (laughs) now has some sort of official status. I had to update my emergency contact info at work recently, Uh and I put my mother on there 
And then I put you and it said relationship and I wrote co-host as if that is a legally recognizable <laughs> relationship. And, you know, I think Mod Cloth is just getting us that much closer. <laughs> My favorite thing that Kristen also told us is that this was actually inspired by a friend and coworker in the office who co-hosts a podcast, which we are going to check out. I like that this synergy is happening between ModCloth and podcast in part because I think that website and podcast are like the best combo for procrastinating at work. Oh, yeah. They're a pretty good combo. ModCast. I also like that this actually came from, Kristen told us, someone in the office there at ModCloth who has a podcast. So another lady co-host pair hmm. thought that these clothes would work well for them. I don't know if they're going to work for me, Greta. I think maybe they're more your style. Does that mean I get the blue one? You can have the blue one. <laughs> This show is produced by two lady co-hosts who are not dressed as well as we could be, clearly. <laughs> I'm Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault, who's dressed just fine. Yeah, he looks pretty dapper. Mm -hmm. Our intern is Annie Newen, and our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you're clearly already listening. But we would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, followed us on NPR One, checked us out on the WBEZ app. We are wherever you are, but giving us that little boost, some stars maybe, yeah. helps spread the good word about Nerdette. We are all about those stars. You can give us stars on the iTunes. Thanks to Funky JT for the very nice iTunes review. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Nerdette Podcast. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where there are delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Music nerds should be checking out sound opinions. And I don't know, what do you think Jim and Greg would look like in these Oh, that's blouses? such a good question. I wonder what lots of podcast co-hosts and hosts would look like in this hmm. blouse. I wonder if you could find out what they look like by going to our Twitter feed and looking at a pinned tweet. Photoshop sure is cool, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder what they would all look like. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. I'm not throwing away my shot. I am just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, yeah. and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. And we'll keep that in there, too. <laughs>